What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 18 of the After Effect Podcast. I am your host, LeBron Stephan. We have a very special guest today, um, former softball pitcher at Clark Atlanta University, Stan Baker. He's a current um, psychiatrist in the state of California. Another female guest, very, very, very excited to have another female on the show to give us some perspective. Um, so just sent her the link and uh, she should be jumping on at any time. Doc, Dr. Baker is here, everyone. <laughs> can you, you can hear me? Yes, that took so much. OMG. I appreciate you carving out the time. Welcome to the After Effect Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, 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 of course. Um, again, so like I told you, this podcast is essentially just giving current and former athletes a uh, voice who typically wouldn't have one to talk about, you know, the current climate, the uh, upbringing game from wherever you're from, um, your transition from high school to college, and more importantly, your After Effect, um, you know, what you decided to do after your um, sports career. So if you're cool with it, we can dive right into it. Are you cool? You okay. cool with dive right into it? <laughs> you said so much. That was a mouthful. Okay. Um, let me see. So start off with growing up here in LA. Yeah. Well, well, before before I dive into your childhood, I want to just ask you one question about the current climate now. What, what's your take on the current climate of the world right now? Uh, obviously, you know, we, we're, we're experiencing a bunch of like racial injustices and I think a lot of people are paying more attention to it. Obviously we've been black our whole life, but people are paying more attention to it maybe because of the pandemic um, and everyone's at home working from home. So maybe that was it, but what's your take just as a, you know, as a black woman, um, working black woman, uh, What's your take on everything that's been going on in the year 2020? Um, as far as social injustice, like clearly it's been going on forever since the mm -hmm. beginning of time. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think people are necessarily like, oh, let me pay attention to this now because oh, it's new to me or whatever the case may be. But I think now that there's more technology and people are recording, I think that is what's getting a lot of attention. But I think for people who are, I'm not going to say like a particular group, but I think for some, it's kind of like a trend for them to be involved mm -hmm. in the current social injustices. Mm -hmm. And I hate to put it like that, but even when having conversations with people, you can tell that, it's kind of on the surface and not really a full understanding of what's going on. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, I think for some, they truly understand what's going on and they want to, you know, create change and they want to help and they want to try to have a better understanding. And some people, they really still don't get it. So yeah. I think that they're more so involved because, oh, because everybody it, because else is involved. Yeah, yeah. It, everybody else is talking about it, so let me talk about it too. So, right. and it's, I it's think when you have conversations with people and you listen to their language, like you can definitely differentiate who mm -hmm. wants to understand and who is really paying attention and who is just like on this train of like, oh, let me 
let me just talk about it because everybody else is talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say that definitely makes sense. And and I and I know what you mean. And I think it's you can definitely tell the people who are like that, like who who are kind of just on the trendy side, like did it because it was kind of a trend and what they wanted they want they going want with emotions. Yeah, yeah, going yeah, going with emotions. Um, but it's it's funny because like now now walking around, you know, as a black man, uh what I notice is it's either like people are like super nice and like speak to me, like, and want me to know like, hey, like, you, like I, I remember when I first started going back to the gym, like a bunch of people used to come up to me, trying to talk to me, trying to say, hey, I, hey, I want you here. Like, like it's okay for you to be here. <laughs> but then so after, I think after George Floyd, it was like a transition, like, and I don't want to just say, Okay, well, my encounters were mostly like white people. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that they were smiling at me or like speaking to me. And I'm just like, is this, does anybody else notice this or is this just happening to me? And I think mm -hmm. when I did speak to like other people, they were like, yeah, like I've noticed that people uh -huh. are like speaking to me and like being uh -huh. nice. And I'm uh -huh. just like, mm -hmm. why couldn't then, you do that before? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And when when they used to happen, I would just smile in my head like, wow, okay. So I, I know you're only being nice because of this. But with that being said, I felt like I still, you can still tell the people that are truly racist and like, they still look at you crazy when you walk into a place or like, you know, depending on whatever errands you're running, they still looking crazy mm -hmm. or they still, uh, you know, give you funny looks when they, when you, when, when they walking past you. Just all those kind of things that black people go through. And I was telling my dad a couple of days ago, like I've gotten so used to that because you know I went to a predominantly white school uh, in a predominantly white state <laughs> uh, college for college, so so I got so I got so used and numb to it, like I'm just used to it now. And then, but when the George Floyd thing happened and everyone started paying attention to it during the during during the pandemic, I found myself uh, trying to pay more attention to others and see really how they're looking and how they're moving, and it's still like it's either this or that, like it's still those kind of vibes or some people are being overly nice. Yeah, and I think a lot of people now, um, because like within my profession, like I have to listen to like language, I pay attention mm -hmm. to language. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't really pick up on like the microaggressions, like mm -hmm. even though it's like not overtly racist, like, mm -hmm. Some people don't pay attention to like the language or like the subtle remarks. The subtle, right, right. And that's the <laughs> and that's the thing, like, because it's always it's there we experience a lot of subtle remarks and it's just like you, you gotta kinda like catch yourself, like what you say? Like, like because it's subtle, it's not like aggressive, but it's still like, what do you say? Like, did you really just say that, you know? And because a lot of people don't point it out or a lot of people don't say anything, it kind of gives them like the okay, like, oh, mm -hmm. they didn't say anything. Like, it so must, it must be have been okay. okay. Right, right. So I think for myself, <laughs> I'm very, uh, I'm not, you know, sometimes like when you express yourself, like not so much like as African American man, because it comes off as assertive, but mm -hmm. as a black woman, if you express yourself, it comes off as aggressive. And I'm the type of person or angry black woman, if you express yourself or uh, be more assertive or more stern in your <laughs> language. So like in my work setting, I'm very direct and um, I'm like really big on like, um, how can I say it? 
just like the injustice of African Americans, like in the mental health system. So mm -hmm. if I see something that's not right, or if I hear people making certain remarks, like I pointed out, mm -hmm. and some people take offense to it or get defensive, and I'm just like, you have to check when you become defensive. If I'm just telling you, like, you know, what you said was not okay, or that wasn't appropriate, or mm -hmm. you need to look at something else, because some people they have this idea of how they move in the world and it's mm -hmm. just like oh i can do whatever i want as black right. people we have, to, we have to look at how we move and we have to look at every little thing that we do every and how we thing. talk how we dress right. how we right. wear our hair Everything. all of those things so <laughs> when you are telling somebody who is from a predominant group like oh that's that's not okay like maybe you should you know they take offense and they don't mm -hmm. want to listen mm -hmm. but the people who are actually like, like oh i didn't notice i did that like you know i'm gonna do better like those mm -hmm. are the people that actually want to not mm -hmm. perpetuate exactly. certain exactly. things within their community or their environment. So exactly. I think sometimes you have to pay attention and kind of point out like, uh, no, that was not okay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and uh, I can say, and, and we'll probably circle back, set, circle back around this once we get to your college career and things like that. But I, I feel like I experienced a lot of that at the University of Iowa, just, uh, like you said, just subtle remarks and just like, oh, because I'm in like, because you know, we both play sports in college, but I'm in this controlled environment, like in this football facility. So whatever you say to me, nine out of 10 times, I'm not going to be able to really take up for myself because I don't want to seem like the problematic black guy or the, the problematic guy on the team. And I, and, and I know that you, you guys have to sign off on me playing on the field. <laughs> so whatever you say to me, I'm just going to have to accept it and should walk back to the practice or walk back to the meeting room or walk back to the locker room. And so I experienced a lot of that. I mean, I mean a ton of that for four and a half, almost five years, just kind of take swallowing it, like, like swallow, like, like swallowing that pill. Like, man, you know, he said that. Okay, cool. I know I can't say nothing because I'm trying to play. I'm trying to go to the NFL. So it's like, I experienced a lot of that in college, but we'll circle back around that. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll dive into your childhood. LA native, uh, you know, you know. You South know. Central specifically, South Central. <laughs> South Central uh, to be exact. Um, so you, I mean, I'm sure you already know, you probably hear this all the time. When everybody thinks of LA, think of palm trees and beaches and you know, the, this gritty or glamorous life. And, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, obviously we like, obviously we know, you know, I lived there for years, so. Obviously, I, we and I know that, you know, everything is not glamorous in L.A. So talk about you growing up in L.A. Talk about, you, like, the vibes and the culture in South Central. Because South Central, I know, I, I know can get uh, rough around the edges. And, you know, I know it's different hoods everywhere. And gang culture is super, super big there. So talk about, like, give us an inside look on the culture growing up there. Like, actually growing up there, walking to school, having friends. Like, what was the culture like there? Um... Oh, it's so hard to describe it in such a kind of like a a narrow <laughs> description because <laughs> let me see. Okay, so yeah, just, give, just, give, just give us the real. <laughs> <laughs> well, South Central is gang culture, so it doesn't matter if you're a female or a male. Mm -hmm. I think for myself, I... Growing up here, I'll just say that it made me desensitized to a lot of things. So 
And what I mean by that is because I was around, like I would walk to school and somebody would legit be shooting at somebody like across the street. And for me, it was just like, oh, they were shooting. Oh, let me continue to walk to school. Like it wasn't like, oh my gosh. Like, you know, some people be like- numb to it, you numb to it. Yeah, Yeah, it was just like- That's your environment, like- Yeah, it was just the environment. And I remember vividly like one incident where I went to go get my little sister from school and we, I think I was in high school, like maybe ninth, 10th grade. And she was like in junior high. And I just went to go walk and get her from school. And in LA, that was like the norm. Like you either walk or you got on the bus. Like right, I didn't right. get a license until I was 21. So right. <laughs> it's almost like New York, but not like the transportation is like extensive as New York, but uh-huh. it was like walk or get on the bus. So mm-hmm. I walked to go get her from school and we stopped at the store and we walked literally out the store. And this guy came from one of the streets on a bike and another guy was running behind him on foot shooting in the middle of the street. Like, no regard for cars around him no regard for anybody it was just like that's my target and i'm trying to get him and we just stuck like just and y'all and y'all just walking to the store and walking back home yeah we just walked to the store we came out of the store and they started shooting the guy ran back to his street and it was just like okay let's go home that's so (laughs) the environment it was just like and then for some people it's just like uh that's crazy like but for me or anybody from la it's yeah that's like, in it like yeah that's normal it's just like oh dang they just shot up this party you think anybody calling the police they going home like yeah. nobody gonna call the police they just it, like the, that kind of violence it was normalized <laughs> i wouldn't say it was normalized i feel like a lot of people were desensitized where it was just um their norm so mm-hmm. people from la it was like it was our norm but I don't want to say it was normalized, like make it seem like, oh, it's okay. I just feel like mm-hmm. a lot of us desensitized to a lot of things. So some people, when you come to LA, all they know is gang culture, especially if mm-hmm. they've never left LA or never experienced anything outside of LA. Mm-hmm. And for myself, because I left LA and I experienced something else, like living in different cities, meeting different people around, you know, around the world, mm-hmm. basically. When I came back here, it was just like oh this is draining like to hear Mm -hmm. this and before you don't really notice it because you know this is your culture like this is what you're around but once Mm -hmm. you leave and then you come back you're like I don't want to sit up here and talk about gangs or I don't want to sit up here and talk about um this person got killed or Mm -hmm. like it it it's like a LA is it's very different and I tell people that all the time because some people be like oh I want to move to LA I love LA I'm like you visit LA and you love it because you're in Hollywood or exactly, you're downtown. Exactly, exactly. you're in the valley like you're not uh-huh. in South Central uh-huh. <laughs> it's a whole different vibe uh in that area it's a different <laughs> environment and mm-hmm. I remember I was in high school and I had on this you know like you know back in the day when people wore uh like the race car jackets and like uh-huh. the team jackets and uh-huh, uh-huh. like M&Ms and all that. So yeah. I had this New York Yankee jacket and it was so cute. It was like this blue with the New York Yankees. I thought I was just the ish. So <laughs> <laughs> I was the only person that had that jacket. Like I you thought, thought I was, was doing You thought she was doing so it out here. <laughs> I thought I was, I thought I was it. And then one day me and some of my friends, we were walking. I know we got on the bus. And we were going up. Everybody know about the Slauson Swap Meet. That's like mm-hmm, the main mm-hmm. swap meet everybody know about. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. was walking to the Slauson Swap Meet, and these people, um, 
they yelling out the window, like banging on us and banging on means like, they like, what hood you from? They telling you what hood they from? Like, they like, this our area. So if you not from this area, you need to leave or they gonna start or, shooting. Or, yeah, or it's home. So a lot of people don't know that that's outside of LA. Like the NY stands for neighborhood. So in, I'm not gonna go into like the whole detail, but neighborhood can be six old where Nipsey Hustle is from, or forties, mm-hmm. thirties. Like mm-hmm. those are like the neighborhood games. So mm-hmm. in Slauson, that's not really the territory. So those people that are driving by was just like, uh, you better take that jacket off, or they don't care if you're female, male. Let me tell you how I swiftly took that jacket off and put it in my backpack, and we oh, kept it moving. Man. Like, <laughs> you can't even, <laughs> you can't even wear a fresh jacket. You can't even wear a fresh jacket. It can't even say NY. It can't be blue. It can't be red. It can't be orange. It can't be purple. Like, that's how it was that deep. So when people, people who I know when they're visiting LA, they're like, can I wear this color? Can I do this? And I'm just like, if it's not going to be in South Central, wear what you want to wear. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah. So, yeah. Um, Those those are super good, like, points of details about just uh, that inside look. As far as South Central is concerned, let me ask you this before we talk about high school and transition to college. You being a true LA native, right? Because you know, living in LA, I feel like um, the vibes are obviously are not like Atlanta, but it, it's a it's a lot of people that live in LA that aren't from LA. <laughs> like you know, it, like I rarely meet I rarely meet people in LA that are literally from LA, born and raised in LA. And so, tell me like what like how did Nipsey Hussle's death like really affect you and like all your like childhood friends people that you really know that's really from LA that really know the culture and that really under and truly understand what he was doing right like all the game all the free game he was given uh all the businesses he owned um all the investments he had going on all like the whole like buy the buy the block back mentality uh, how he owned that whole parking lot um talk about like like how that affected the true LA natives because obviously it affected the world and everybody a lot of people were fans of Nipsey Hussle um I know yeah, I was uh, I think I got hit to him kind of late to be honest I didn't get hit to him until 2013 when Crenshaw came out and then that's when I really follow all his interviews and really listen to his lyrics to to literally try to catch some game and understand how he got to where he was uh you know before he passed so t- talk about that a little bit so to go back to your other point um so people who, so LA, so some people are not from LA, but they live in LA, but some people don't understand that LA County is huge and LA County is, um, it consists of South Central, the city of LA and the outskirts. So like Pasadena and mm-hmm. like the out little valley areas like that's considered la county so i think a lot of people when they say like oh i'm from la they're saying la county and not necessarily like the city so but as far as yeah so if people know la la like Mm -hmm. inglewood is not la that's la county so Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't distinguish the two so um but as far as like nipsey hustle i think to not go on like this long tangent but Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people, of course, like the whole world was like, OMG, like Nipsey Hussle, like a lot of people listen to his music, you know, listen to like a lot of things he said as far as business wise, like Mm -hmm. just changing like the narrative of Mm -hmm. people who can be from gangs or change Mm -hmm. how they are or just changing the narrative of being 
being seen as like a not good person in the eyes of like uh, in the eyes of society so and for myself and like people from LA I think well I can't speak for everybody because everybody's uh everybody's going to be different as far as like what how they were hurt by it but Mm -hmm. I think because he actually cared about LA like actually repped LA actually cared about how people perceived LA actually cared about how LA looked actually Mm -hmm. cared about how people who look like him or grew up like him how they were perceived by other people outside of LA and just to be him like just to be yourself and to be yourself but also have this narrative of like you know I'm gonna dress how I dress or I'm gonna you know Mm -hmm. rep where I'm from I'm gonna do all of these things because that's how I grew up but I also want to change the narrative of how people view me because I want to do good things and for some they were just like oh he was a gangbanger so why are you guys just so why are you guys so hurt by this but it I think because people some people didn't really follow him or really didn't see the good that he was doing like in the background Mm -hmm. people really didn't understand that aspect like people just thought like oh he's a gangbanger so why why y'all so hurt by this right like this is supposed to happen yeah and it's just like people didn't understand like all the things that he was trying to do as far as making things better for like the youth in this environment because a lot of people from LA don't get out of LA like they stay here and they work at the airport or they work somewhere in the community like mm-hmm. some people really don't have like those that. resources those resources or they don't have that vision to be like oh i want to get out or i want to do something different because people Mm -hmm. are stuck in his mindset Mm -hmm. so for somebody like him who wanted to see people improve or see people you know get out of the not really necessarily get out of the hood but get out of that hood mentality of like this is where i need to be stuck or this is where i need to be to you know make myself look a certain way so i think go go ahead no go ahead you can finish oh so i think for myself and other people it was more so like this is somebody like that really cared and was really trying to like change the narrative of south central and change the narrative of you know you could be a gang member or you can be involved in certain things but still you know want to see good in others or want to see good in the environment Mm -hmm. and i think that was something that went over a lot of people's heads so yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, from the outside looking in, in my opinion, it felt like he was trying to, like like you said, em- like empower his hood, like empower that environment, let them know that, hey, I'm from L.A. too. Like, you know, you don't have mm-hmm. to, like you said, you just trying to lose that hood mentality. Like, you know, you can still be from the hood and still have those kind of like morals and ethics, like, but, but mm-hmm. to not like take it further than it needs to go, right? And to find like what you're passionate about or what you'd like to do and, you know, and, and do that and make a living and take care of your family and have fun and, and stuff like that. Uh, it really impressed me just how tapped in he was with business, like always owning something like, you know, he never wanted to join a label just, you know, for the money. He always wanted to own his masters. Mm-hmm. And then he eventually branched off to, you know, a clothing line and uh, just like a small little corner store, just selling essentials like T-shirts and uh, Carmex and you know whatever Swissers you know you know whatever you need in the hood but then but then that developed into like a true like the marathon clothing like a true uh, flagship store like you know with its own mm-hmm. with its own vibes and its own infrastructure 
And, uh, you know, from when he started, he all, him and his brother always said they wanted to own that whole little parking lot where they started hustling at. And, and they, and I think a couple months before he passed, like they, they, you know, they closed on that, on the last little, uh, I think it was like a barbershop or something that they had to pay for, but they closed on the whole lot and they owned a the whole lot for a couple months um, before he passed. So it's just, it's so unfortunate, but I always- Some people that. didn't even know that though. I remember I was talking to one of my friends about the Marathon uh, store and I was like, um, I said, he owns that whole complex. Like, and she was like, she was like, really? I was like, yeah. I was like, when he was younger, they used to hang out in front of uh, the little- the little burger little joint right there and the guy used to always be like don't hang out in front of here and then it went from that to okay now you paying me rent mm -hmm. and so right. i don't think a lot of people i don't think people really understand like you you can be yourself and still you know act how you want to act or whatever the case may be but you can still have power moves and want to do different things and want to empower other people or yeah just want to see good for your environment or people around you or yourself and people just looked at how he looked mm -hmm. where he was from exactly. and i guess him being a gangbanger so mm -hmm. i think people can't get past that yeah and, and uh man i mean and i think it's what's been i i really don't understand or know why that's minimized like i think obviously people his true fans has really tapped into him no knew that and like, I'm sure a bunch of LA natives know that as well, but people don't understand how hard that is, especially in LA, like the property tax in LA, like like to buy property, to buy commercial buildings mm -hmm. with, with stores and uh, barbershops and burger joints, like that shit is, that shit is tough to do. Like, you, you, you gotta have some paper or, some, cap or some capital rent, or so. yeah, like <laughs> everything so hot, man. I'll be telling people, I'll be telling people, man, like, like shit, you can't even get eggs for less than, uh, Three fifty, four dollars in LA, like. <laughs> it depends on the grocery store you go to, and you gotta yeah, food, you gotta go into the hood. Yes, yes, yeah. I'm talking about food for less. The and, and still two ninety nine. Superior. Two ninety nine, three three forty nine, <laughs> man. So not just food for less, but superior too. Yeah, see, I don't even know nothing about superior. Because <laughs> you never came to South Central. Right. So let alone that. <laughs> let alone that. So like you know to. Though to really boss up like that, make those moves that they did, um, and to be from the streets, I, I thought that was just commemorable. And like you know, I knew I knew people like that from from where I'm from, from Cleveland, that always kind of had that hood mentality, but but grew up and like always kind of just had that entrepreneurship mentality. So whether they opened up like a little bar or a restaurant or a barber shop mm -hmm. or you know any, anything like that, uh, they always was kind of like business oriented. And I feel like even if you major in business, like, and you can be educated, sometimes you, you may not even have that, or you may not even want those kind of pressures, or you, you, you may not even have those kind of entrepreneurial goals. And so that's why I think being from any hood, any hood, like you can, it's lessons in those. It's, it's lessons that you can take from those, you know? Definitely. Yeah. So talk about like playing sports in high school. Um, tell us like what, what sports did you play in high school? Uh, you know, what was your favorite sport? And then uh, talk about like your decision to ultimately go to HBCU for undergrad, the Clark Atlanta University. Um, did you always dream that you wanted to go to HBCU? 
did you think about going to like a power five school or more predominantly white school or did you always know that you wanted to be around black people and you wanted to go to HBCU? So in, let me see. So I initially started off, I did cheer. <laughs> I was like, yes. I think I was like in the sixth grade and I did it for like a year and I was, no, maybe like two years. So I think I was in the fifth grade, no, sixth grade I did it. And then I was just like, I don't freaking like this. Like, it's just not, I was like a little tomboy. So I don't even know why I even got into cheer. And then I just started doing basketball. I used to play basketball like uh, during like PE with like the other little boys, like Mm -hmm. even like in elementary, like going into junior high. Mind you, my elementary was like, on one street and then the junior high was a gate like it was connected by a gate so when you left but long you went to john mirror which is literally next door so the entry of but long was on but long and the entry of john mirror was on vermont which is like the next block over yeah right next to the two schools like took up a whole like circular block okay so um I did basketball in junior high, and then I transitioned to high school, started with basketball. I was good, but I wasn't, like, great. So, and I don't even, honestly, I don't even know why I even stuck with basketball, because 10th grade, I went, I think basketball was over, and they had tryouts for softball. So, I just went out there just to be like, oh, let me just go out there just to see. Where you, were just trying to, was, you were just trying to stay active? Like, you you had never played softball? Honestly, I was so last of day school. I just went with the flow of whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. I can't even explain it. <laughs> it was just like, oh, let me go try out for the softball team or just go out there. Okay. So, I was they were doing like the woofer balls, like the little plastic balls and like had us hitting them. Mm-hmm. And I was whacking them things. Like my dad never played <laughs> softball a day in my life. And I'm out there whacking them. And the mm-hmm. coach was like, you had never played this? softball? <laughs> yeah. Like, I was like, no, I never played before. He was like, oh, we got to get you on a team. Like, mm-hmm. so I started off JV and then I went to varsity and then ever since then I never went back to basketball I just mm. stuck with softball yeah. and I was able to well before I get into playing in undergrad so I was initially supposed to go to UC Santa Barbara okay and okay. We did, I was in this college program and we went to go visit UC Santa Barbara and I was just like it's too many white people here yeah. and I am not used to this did you, <laughs> so, did, you did you see any black people at Santa Barbara no yeah, I was, about to, I, was I was about there. to say, yeah, you probably didn't, yeah. The only black people I saw was the black people I came with. Like, yeah, I didn't yeah. see any black people. So I was just like, uh, I don't know about this. So <laughs> I got um, an acceptance letter. I, the Clark Atlanta was the only out-of-state school I applied to. All the other schools were in California. Wow. So I received my acceptance letter late and I had like a lot of family stuff going on, like a lot of um, personal stuff going on. Mm-hmm. So something just told me like, okay, I'm gonna go to Clark. Like it was just random. My job had never been outside was, of LA. It was just and a I feeling. Just decided, huh? It was just a feeling. It was just like a feeling like it's too much going on in LA. Like I just got way too much. And mm-hmm. during that time, my mom had relapsed on drugs. So I was just like, oh, I need to, I need to go. Like, I need a different environment. Yeah, so exactly. my right. cousin, I, we didn't have no money. Like, I grew up 
in low income housing, like mm-hmm. lived in my grandma's house, like we didn't have no money to for me to just be moving to Georgia. Yeah. So my cousin at the time he was like, All right, I'm gonna get you a one way ticket. So he bought me like this one way ticket to Atlanta and I was able to take like two suitcases. I don't know where them suitcases came from. Like they was somebody used suitcases. <laughs> and I just right. put whatever I had in there mm-hmm. and I went to Atlanta with two suitcases and probably like twenty dollars like no nothing yeah i had no family there i think when i went there um one girl we were friends in high school so she was my roommate that didn't work out so (laughs) (laughs) so um i didn't want to play softball when i went to college because i was like i just want to focus on school so Mm -hmm. here i am like I'm just going to focus on school. I'm not going to uh, play softball. And then that bill came and it was like, mm-hmm. um, how you going to pay for school next year? Exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up going to walk on, like I did walk on tryouts. Okay. And I ended up getting a partial scholarship. So I got half of my schooling paid for. Oh, wow. Like just being a walk on. So yeah, I was yeah. just like, okay. And, so. And- and so, and you walk, I mean, you went to the walk-on trial and you ended up getting a partial scholarship. Was that immediate? Because I know at, at the bigger schools, at the power five schools, usually when you walk on, you got, the walk-ons usually have to pay like for like the first year and they have to prove to the coaches that they're valuable and they, they, they can be a valuable asset to the team. And then they'll maybe grant them a, a partial, but it's, it's like a gradual situation. But which in your instance, they really, they really liked you and thought you were talented and gave you the partial like ASAP or? So how that worked was, so my first year, because I was in this uh, college program, it was called Upper Bound. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had access to like scholarships or like book, little grants, like little stuff like that. So, and we had Pell Grant. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what else I had access to. So my mm-hmm. first semester, was basically paid for like I didn't have to pay for anything so everything was taken care of and I think that next semester I was able to get um, my balance paid off well whatever I needed through softball Mm -hmm. and then that following year I was able to get half of the tuition because I was only good for that one year like Mm -hmm. when I first came in but Mm -hmm. um I think I got help like that next semester and then following that, that's when I signed my papers and I got half of my schooling paid for. So yeah. with half of the, the tuition paid for, I had Pell Grant and then um, I had like some other stuff, but um, yeah, I was good. My yeah. all four years while I was there, I didn't have to really worry about any financial stuff until like maybe my junior year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I couldn't get like the parent plus loan or anything like that. So, so it kind of worked out. Man, so so what was the feeling like going to HBCU, like seeing all these like uh, students that look like you, uh, and but more more over than that, like students that look like you that are that want to be successful, that are in college. Like I remember, man, I went to uh, Hampton. Like like a couple of my good friends that I grew up with in Cleveland, they went to Hampton. And so I went there like mm-hmm. my like my junior spring break. I went to, I I visited Hampton and stayed there all week and met all these like and I was like, I mean, my I was in shock. Like I mean my mouth was literally dropped like the whole week because I had never because I had never saw like I come from the inner city of Cleveland to Iowa City where it's ninety eight percent white. Only black people there mm-hmm. are 
the athletes, and it's a couple of students. It's a couple of black students, but it, it's not that many. And then I go, I visit the Hampton University, and it's all black people. I mean, I see people 20 years old, male, female, driving Benz, driving Bentleys, like, 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 look, that look successful, like that, 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 um, in, that are enjoying college. And so I know for me, I was like, I, I mean, my, I had big googly eyes the whole time. Like, like <laughs> I, I had never seen anything like that. Like, so, it, like, so just tell me what that was for you, like what that experience was for you. Um, I'm sure you got used to it eventually. I'm sure when you first got there, you was like, wow, this is, you know what I'm saying, this is dope. When I first got there, it was a culture shock because I was like, hey, number of black people. And I, me being from LA, everybody knew that I was from LA. Like, no matter where the person was from, they used to be like, you from Cali? I have to be like, yeah, like, how the hell do y'all know that? Like, <laughs> they be like, oh, it's, it's your accent, and you walk around here with chucks on. Like, you know, other people that's not from Cali don't wear chucks, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, and then I'm there with chucks in a little, a little jacket, like a little jean jacket, and it's cold as hell. Uh -huh. And they like, you not from here, huh? And I was like, no. It was like, you from Cali? I'm like, yeah. How do I'm like, how do you guys know this? And it was uh -huh. like, cause you walk around here with chucks in a little jacket in this freezing outside. And I was just like, <laughs> we don't have jackets for real in LA. Like it right. barely even gets cold. It gets it gets cold at night because we're close to the beach. But yeah, it gets cold at night. But during the day, we have no winter jackets where we bundled up with scarves on like yeah. i was like i learned real quick that next year like oh i need a jacket like but <laughs> as far as like the people i learned real quick that black people from different parts of the world are different mm -hmm. and they are not the same right right <laughs> so i tell people i'll be like all black people are not the same depending on the demographic mm -hmm. where they from because mm -hmm. I was just like, I had never met anybody from New York. So no New uh, York accents, no right. North accents. I was just like, <laughs> right. I was like, and y'all say Cali people have accents? I'm like, right. no, like it's y'all. Uh -huh. I met did, so did, many different. Did huh? you ever, did you ever feel like, well, I mean, you were amongst, you, you were amongst other black people. So I'm sure even though you talk different, I'm sure were, were people able to understand you? Because I know going to a predominantly white school, and, and me and you talk about this all the time, like how you got a certain twang because you're from LA, I got a certain twang because I'm from Cleveland. But when I went to Iowa, like, I literally had to like adjust the way that I talk because I'm talking to, you know, all, all these, I'm meeting all these different um, white students and just trying to get friends, gain friends. And I literally had to adjust the way that I'm talking because they literally not understanding what I'm saying. Because I would just say for sure, for sure, this oh yeah, for sure, like oh bet that, like you know, just just twang like that, and they're like what, like for sure, like what, like oh for for sure, like you know, I'm sorry, like so, was that like an easy transition as far as like yo lingo, even even though you you were amongst like all oh, black people, I don't think it was a change. I feel as though because everybody from different parts of the country use different language and i i remember somebody was like yeah slime and i'm like what the hell is a slime like <laughs> what are you talking about like right, right, right. Huh? or yeah b i'm just like who is b like yo b yo son sense huh i'm like why is everybody your son like what are y'all talking about <laughs> so 
I think once, like, let's just say if I'm having a conversation and I say something, I'm usually, like, I'm used to saying in L.A., like, people will be like, what the hell does that mean? And then you mm-hmm. explain it. I think after a while, people start picking up on other people's language or people, like, little words and lingo, and then they start using it. Because I started using, like, other language because I was just like, okay, I know what it means now. And I yeah. starting to understand, and people starting to understand me. So I think it kind of enmeshed where people start using other people, like, some people use it to be funny and then some people was using it because like you was used to hearing other people say it mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. I, think, I, agree. I don't think I had to like really adjust as far as how I communicated but I think I had to learn um and understand how other people communicated okay I got you I got you uh if that makes sense. yeah yeah that definitely makes sense what uh did you have any moments that stood out to you in your undergrad um, career plan softball. Uh, any like successes that really stood out to you? Um, let me see. I mean, I don't know. Noth- nothing that really stood out, stood out like that. I mean, I received like awards for like plan good or um, mm-hmm. things like that. You know how they give awards at the end where it's like um, all team something, all team whatever. Yeah, yeah. I received like a few of those, like okay. playing softball. So okay, that's dope. But, that's dope. Um, other than that, I don't. We were close to winning uh, the championship, but we oh. lost. So okay, and that was like the first time in like CAU softball history years yeah. where we even came that close because usually. Yeah. Like, the teams, like, never got that close. We always had, like, they will always say, like, we always had good softball, like, teams and players. But I think it was more so, like, how do you get them to play good together? So, we had a good team, but we had a little little downfall at the end. But, I mean, we were happy that we even got that close, so. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, that's that's what's up. Um, so talk about your transition. So you know you go to you go to Clark Atlanta uh, and you play softball for undergrad. Mm-hmm. Then you then you transition to another uh, infamous um, HBCU. The illustrious. Right. <laughs> the the real you the, tra- mecca, the, the mecca. The real HU is what is what they say. The real HU, okay. So you 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 matriculate to uh, Howard University for graduate school after you graduate from from. Um, Clark Atlanta undergrad. Yes. Talk about like that transition going like just going directly into it, going straight from undergrad to graduate school. Uh and talk about like I mean some differences from you know the black culture in Atlanta and the black culture in DC. So when I transition, so undergrad, my first like I feel like I was about to go home after that first year. So <laughs> in Clark Atlanta? I was I mean, yeah. I mean, or, or, or Howard? At Clark. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So when I transitioned uh, from high school to college, I was the first person to graduate high school. So I really didn't have, like, people to be like, oh, this is what you do when you go yeah, to Yeah, you didn't have a mentor. You didn't have nobody to walk you through it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have anybody to walk me through. So the first year, I'm free. And mind you, I'm only 17. So I left L.A. before, like, because my birthday is later, mm-hmm. I left. Um, when I was 17, so I'm not even 18 yet, so I'm 17, never left LA before, so I got, like, a little freedom, 
And we going out, mind you, we going out to places where we probably weren't even supposed to be. So <laughs> we going out. I'm late to classes. I I don't know what's going on. Like, so I was like, ooh, I don't even know if I'm gonna be here next year because the way these classes and this GPA set up, I don't know. So <laughs> I had to like learn how to like be a student because mm-hmm. mind you, I went to Time inner, I went to all inner city schools in LA. So yeah. they did not have the best preparation for college. Mm-hmm. They always mm-hmm. talked about college, but they're talking about colleges. Oh, go to a JUCO. Like, mm-hmm. so that's, that's their like, Oh, go to a junior college first. So, yeah. So you had to learn on the fly as far as your time management. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that was a transition. So, I don't even think I made straight A's until like my senior year in undergrad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, that's real. So, that's real. Yeah. So I, I managed, I went from like a 2.0, like literally a 2.0 first semester to graduating with like a 3.4. So oh, I don't even up. know how I did that. Yeah. But it happened. I, I, yeah. So. That means, that means, that means you turned it around in a major way. Yeah, and a lot of stuff happened, like, when I was in undergrad, like, my mom passed away, like, I didn't have any money, like, it was just a hot mess, like, especially, like, being in a whole different, uh, on a different side of the country, like, with no family support, like, no, none of that, so, it was, like, really hard, so when I transitioned to Howard, it was, it was, like, okay, well, what the hell do I do, like, I don't have softball, yeah, yeah, you're a student, you're a grad student, yeah, I'm a student now, and I'm just, like, I don't even know, like, what the hell grad students do. Like, <laughs> I'm like, hey, I gotta like read more, or I don't yeah. even know. Like, and Howard was the only school I applied to, like, for grad okay. school. I was like, I'm going to Howard. Like, I'm going to HBCU. I'm going to Howard because I used to hear like a lot of good things about Howard. So, yeah, yeah. In my mind, I was like, this only school I'm applying to because that's the only school I want to go to, and I ended right. up getting in. So, okay. Um, it was a really different transition because I was just like, dang, I'm used to like going to practice, having to go to workouts, having right. to go you, to this, having right. to go to you, you used to ba- You used to balancing that athlete, like that athlete schedule. And I always tell people, I, I always tell people, I never really knew or tried to figure out what I wanted to go to grad school for, but I just wanted to, I just kind of wanted, even at right now at 31, I still kind of want to experience grad school because I just want to know what it is to go to school as a student. Like, don't have to go yeah. to practice. Don't have to. Your body ain't sore all the time. I, and I can just really experience it as like a true just four-time student. You're not Are getting you, yelled at. Yeah, out. just all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so you say that that transition for you, you had to figure out what you do with your free time. <laughs> I was like, what the hell am I supposed to do? So... I I think to make up for my free time, like during uh, my grad school years, I think I was, my program was three years, but I finished in two and a half because one semester I took like 17 credits. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I was just like, I need, cause me, I learned that I have to continuously like do stuff. So yeah. while in my program, I was taking classes, I had to do like a practicum, like a little intern, mm-hmm. um, extern mm-hmm. little thing. Mm-hmm. And I had two jobs. So it was like, go to class, go to extern, go to one job, mm-hmm. and then probably go to the other job if depending on how my schedule was. So it was literally like all day I had something to do and I would get home and go to sleep or do homework or whatever the case and then start mm-hmm. all over again. So that's right. really how I 
occupy or like preoccupy my time, mm-hmm. I kind of put other stuff in there so I could be busy because I was used to always being busy in undergrad. Mm-hmm. So I was able to do that. But when I transitioned to um, my doctoral program, that's when I was like, dang, I can't work. Yeah, because it took up so much like, time. Yeah, like, no, you can't work, but I end up working anyway. So I worked, <laughs> I worked all five, well, four years, like, while in school. So mm-hmm. the transition, it wasn't hard. It was just trying to figure out, okay, like, how do I fill my time? Yeah, yeah. Because I was used to being on a schedule. So yeah. I had to learn that quick. Got you. I got you. So what were some, did any differences stand out to you? What were some differences uh, from Clark Atlanta and uh howard were were the men different were the women different like you know like like what were some differences between those two um okay so because i was in grad school i didn't like experience like um i didn't get like the undergrad experience so okay i didn't know like how do i explain it I can't really tell you like the school culture because I wasn't on campus like chilling. Cause you know, in undergrad, you mostly like on campus chilling because at Clark, we, um, we used to be like, um, at the student center or walking down the promenade. Like that was a place where everybody hung out. So in undergrad, you, you chilling like in between class or on your way to class, you talking to people, but grass was just like, go to class. Yeah. You're moving a little different. Yeah. You're not really, you talking to the people that you're in class with. So, um, as far as like, I think when talking to people, they'll be like, oh, you know, um, if they knew you was in grad school, they'd be like, oh, what undergrad did you go to? And of course, if you said any other grad other than Howard, they was like, oh, well, I guess you found home. Like, you know how the HBC culture is. It's just like, <laughs> oh, you went to Clark. Oh, I, I guess, like, but you did make it <laughs> home. Like, you you came to Howard, so. <laughs> yeah, it always then, seemed like all the people that I meet from Howard, like, uh, I, I've met quite a few people, uh, especially living in Atlanta. Um, it seemed like they always just got kind of like that upper echelon, like, vibe. Like, I, I went to Howard. Like, I went to the real HU. Like, <laughs> it's, it's almost like a virus. Like, <laughs> Because even though I went to Clark, I, if I see somebody with like some HU stuff, I'll be like, ain't you? Like, okay. And they'd be like, you know, like, but if I see somebody that went to Clark, I'll be like, oh, I went to Clark. Like, it's a whole different, like, yeah, yeah, a whole yeah, different yeah. vibe. It's a whole different vibe. Yeah, yeah. I already know. But when I was at Howard, I was in class with people that went to Morehouse, people that went to Spelman, people that okay. went to Hampton. Okay. So people from different HBCUs, and I would just, and people would be like, oh, no, because I, and one of the professors, she went to Spelman. So, of course, like the Morehouse needs to be like, oh, you my sister. And she, and then she'll be like, uh, no, like, <laughs> no, I'm not. Like, right. I'm, I'm way in a whole different generation. Like, I'm not on that. Uh uh-uh. uh. So, right, right, right. and people used to make comments like, oh, you went to Clark. And I'd just be like, and we both ended up at Howard. So, right. <laughs> what's the difference? Like, but it's all like friendly little competition. It's, you know, right, people right. that went to HBCU, it's always going to be like, oh, you went to HBCU? Okay. Like, so yeah. it's like a different type of culture being yeah. that you went to HBCU. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, yeah. And that's something that I definitely noticed. So uh, talk about, like, before we talk about your doctoral program, like, what um, inspired you to get into uh, mental health psychology? Like, just that realm, that space of things. 
Um, you know, I think as an athlete, it's been pretty cool for me. Uh, as an athlete, it's been pretty cool for me because it's been more athletes kind of like coming out and speaking about mental health and the different things that um, athletes go through. Uh, whether you make it to the NFL, NBA, MLB, or you don't make it, um, you know, your whole life, you're kind of like, uh, you're like, you're like seen as like this like action figure or like warrior. So it's kind of like, it's almost like you're not like a real person or you don't have like real feelings because you're just this player and everything is based off your performance. Right. Yeah. And so um, a lot of times, even if you make it to the NBA and NFL, you're a millionaire and you, and you didn't, you made all these successes. A lot of guys still have mental health issues or, you know, kind of get down on themselves or just, have sporadic moments of um, sadness and stuff like that. Uh, and back in 2013, I always, I had like a, a visceral feeling like, like our, our, our mental health as athletes, like it's like, it's minimized. It's not taken serious. It's like, to give you an example, a guy like me, you know, I was always successful in sports my entire life. And then I get to college and I experience turbulence. I experience roadblocks. I don't, I don't start to my senior year. I experienced a lot of different kinds of racism and classism and nobly obliged and stuff like that, that I just kind of had to accept and not say anything to and hold in. And so then when I'm like 22, 23 and trying to figure out my life as I'm still trying to chase the NFL, I'm starting to have struggles. I'm starting to uh, think less of myself and I'm starting to like get in dark spaces. Like, and you know, uh, and then and I know that I wasn't the only guy. I had some friends that was going through that too. And that's when I started feeling like, man, like we don't we. How could I ever get this out? And then obviously, you know, you know how the, the vibe is in inner city, how we grew up, especially in the 90s. It's yeah. no therapy ain't cool. Your parents didn't go to therapy. Nobody in your family went to therapy. You don't know nothing about therapy. Uh nine out of ten times, whatever you went through, whether it was abuse or trauma or whatever, you probably ain't never talked about it to nobody, just all those kind of things. So what what made you get into mental health? What made you get uh, into psychology? Um, so I'm trying to like pinpoint exactly when, but I know prior to going into psychology, I wanted to be an attorney and then I wanted to be an OBGYN. Okay. And then you didn't know what you, you, you didn't know didn't which know one to be. Yeah. To be. <laughs> and That's then the fact know. that I, like, I didn't have, like, people in my family that was, like, a doctor or mm -hmm. a lawyer or, you know, different things like that. Like, most of my family were, like, nurses, like, RNs for the most part. So, a lot of them, like, they, I would say, like, a good majority of my family were, like, nurses. But my mom, she was a chef. So, I really didn't, like, see like the academic side like of my family so I really I was good at school but I tell people all the time like I feel like school was more so it was like a coping mechanism for me because okay. like I was away from home so oh, okay. or even like with sports yeah. so it was like oh this is my time to be away from home so this yeah. is like my coping so you had you had so much going on at home like school and sports that was your outlet being away it was like okay I'm I'm away from like 7.30 to like six o'clock. So yeah, yeah. or 5.30, so I'm away from home. So, yeah. and I don't really know. I, I tell people all the time, I just feel like psychology trying, 
like kind of chose me okay because okay. I wanted to like be like all these other things and I think because of like my upbringing and like family issues and mm -hmm. I have like a lot of people in my family that deal like dealt with substance and alcohol abuse and uh -huh, uh -huh. And as you get older, you start to see, like, oh, that's what happened when I was younger. Like, it makes sense now. Like, you start yeah. to, like, pinpoint, yeah. like, certain memories, and you like, oh, that what was going on. Like, when I was a kid, I didn't really understand. Right, so right. So, I think for myself, I wanted to, like, understand more or mm. kind of be that person to, like, change the narrative of, like, mental health, especially, mm -hmm. like, in the Black community. Especially in the Black and, community. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the times, like, people have this this misconception about therapy or you know as black people be like i'm not telling nobody my business like i'm why would i go to this person i don't know and i'm just uh -huh. like and i had to like explain what therapy is to people because they just have this misconception like oh you go to therapy and they're supposed to tell you what to do and i'm just like i don't tell people what to do when they come to therapy with me like the point is for you to work out what you're going through and to have somebody exactly. there to listen and like guide you it's mainly so, to talk yeah yeah, like just somebody that you can communicate and talk to that does not know you, that does not know anybody that you're associated with. Like, so, right. and I remember I told um, like a family member because they were like, oh, well, therapists, like they're just there to, um, they're there to work through their own stuff. Like they're not really helping you. They're there to work through their own stuff. And I'm just like, well, I was like, well, I'm a therapist and why would I utilize somebody else's hurt or pain or experiences to work through my own stuff? Like right. I said, wouldn't that be too much on myself? Like that is counterintuitive. Like right. it's like counterproductive. Like I can't utilize somebody else's hurt while trying to deal with my own hurt. That doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, and I had to like, some people don't realize like, therapists mental health professionals like we are human so of course we're going to have our own issues or exactly. our own stuff that we're dealing with just like anybody mm -hmm. else but mm -hmm. just because somebody else just because a professional even like a doctor a doctor just because they're a doctor doesn't mean that they don't have their own surgeon or they don't have their own pediatrician or whatever the case may be right x y and z so mm -hmm. I'm like, you guys have to normalize and see therapists as human beings, like, exactly. and understand that, of course, they probably got their own stuff going on, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I think there's people, people don't utilize what they don't understand. Exactly. exactly. So I try to like, I guess I try to, to teach people or help them understand from like a, a normal conversation or just you know regular communication mm -hmm. because people who meet me like they wouldn't think I was a doctor like or they wouldn't think that I was a therapist because I I am me like I'm sin so right. I'm gonna act how I act I wear my braids just like this to work like <laughs> I wear hoop earrings like oh. I wear what, I, what normal people would wear yeah like, you're, you unapologetically you yes I am me like I I'm 30 years old so I I go out I go to day parties like I go to brunch so uh -huh. and I think people have like this this misconception of how a therapist is supposed to look or right. I even have issues of like people looking at me like, Oh, you the, you the social worker or you the case manager. I'm just like, no, I, I'm Dr. Baker. Like, so, and then ageism, like people look at me and be like, Oh, you're young. Like, how are you supposed to help me? Like, yeah, yeah. And I've had, especially like with my African-American clients, 
if I come across them, if they're young or older adult, like I was sit there and tell them like, I'm not here to make you talk about anything you're not supposed to, that you don't want to talk about. I'm not going to force you to mm-hmm. do anything that you don't want to do, but mm-hmm. I am going to make sure that, you know, you're getting what you're supposed to get while you're in the care of me. So I utilize that time to like teach them or help them understand like, and they'll come and be like, well, my last therapist, they did this or they X, Y, and Z. And I, um, I'm really big on like telling people like everybody's not good at their job. Mm-hmm. I don't care what profession it is or what area it is. And I'll let somebody know, like, just because somebody has a D and R in front of their name does not mean that they're going to do an awesome job or they're going to really care about their position or whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. Right. And I think people utilize or bring in past experiences to like new people or into a new experience. Mm-hmm. So I think I got off topic, but no no you didn't like you you you, your uh question was i just wanted you to kind of expound on like why you got into mental health and that's all everything you're talking about is why you got into it well yeah so basically um i kind of basically got into it just like to learn and understand because for myself like i i went through a lot of stuff growing up and then i experienced stuff like with my mom with like relapse and her passing and just trying to like learn myself or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And then being in a single parent home and living in LA and just like seeing all of these things around me. And I think that some people don't, I think because we're, we become desensitized, just like I said, like being from LA, you're desensitized to a lot of things. And I don't think we fully understand that a lot of those things affect us. Even though we don't pay attention to them or we don't see them as serious, but Mm -hmm. they still have an effect on who we are as individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for people to understand that. And I think that, I think the real main, main reason I got into psychology is because it's a white male driven field. So Mm. when you have people that don't look like you in a certain field, you're not going to feel comfortable fully to go to the doctor or go to therapy or go and do X, go to the dentist or whatever the case may be. I feel like people are more empowered when you have somebody that look like you. Cause even now I'm like, I tell people, I'm like, you have to shop around for your therapist. So if you want a black therapist, you can say you want a black therapist. Like nobody should make you feel bad for wanting a black therapist. I, I would prefer a black doctor. I would prefer a black uh, physician or I would prefer a black dentist. Mm -hmm. Not because like, it's like, oh, well, I think they're better than, you know, other groups. It's just like, I want to go to somebody that looks like me because I mm-hmm. know what I do for the people I work with. So I'm right. pretty sure they got into the same position for that reason to like help and educate people that look like them. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to have, uh, just so people can see like, mm-hmm. cause people get surprised when I be like I don't tell people what I do, but of course, like my friends and family would be like, "Oh yeah, yeah she's yeah. a doctor." People are like, "This one right here," because outside of work, oh, you see my nails. Like I get my nails done. Like yeah, yeah, and that's and man, it's so <laughs> it's so crazy. Like like the stigma the stigma that that we put on certain jobs like it's like oh, okay if you a doctor you're supposed to look like this and you're supposed to act like this you're supposed to talk like, like this, this and you're and supposed to it's just like yeah you can't uh, no. yeah you can't i like it seems like you can't you're not supposed to do 
culturistic things or things that you like to do, like whether you get your hair done, your nails done, or you wear your hoop earrings. Like if that's you, that and that's what I tell people all the time, like that has nothing to do with your education. Like that has nothing to do with your brain. You, you're still smart. You, you still attain all these um, accolades. And you're still you. Like you still do what you do. And if you want to do this or you want, you got this kind of style, like, that should be okay. Like, But some people don't, I think some people are not being okay with being themselves. Like mm-hmm. I've met people like that where they're like, Oh no, I don't know if I want to do that. I'm just like, why not? Like, so, right. but everybody is not at that level of like being comfortable with who exactly. they truly are. And exactly. They're not able to separate because even though people think I don't have any sense, like, so outside of work, I'm not talking about work. I'm not using big words. Like, no, like I'm using slang. Like, Right. I, sometimes I'll be like, I ain't got so people be looking right. like you went to school, like and I'm just like it's just the culture of like growing up how you talk, like exactly. and I'm just I always tell people I'll be like, you can take the girl out the hood, but you can't take the hood out the girl. Like, and right. that's okay. Right. It's okay. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's uh that's super dope that you able that you able to be in that space where you know your passion and you know what you want to do like you know for your job but also you still know who you are you still um you know exude that kind of energy off and like you kind of un- unapologetically be you like and that's that I, I feel like that's what matters like that's what make you that's what makes you really feel whole just whole as a person whole as a human mm-hmm. just like that you know that you're doing what you want to do but you're doing it being you you're not doing it being somebody else and you know that maybe you want to do something else or maybe you want to wear this hairstyle or these areas or do this or do that but you know that oh i'm a doctor so let me oh let me just not but it's like no like be on be on positive view and that's cool that you're in that space and i think it's important i don't have any kids but i think it's important for people like especially kids to see like oh this person you know they're from where i'm from or you know they like the same music i like or whatever the case may be but they still went to school or they're still smart. Like, so I think sometimes, and I tell people, especially like depending on the people that's ready to have the conversation. Like I remember we had a discussion about George Floyd and I was just like, you guys see me as Dr. Baker at work, but I was like, once I leave here, like I'm just black. Like I'm just a regular black girl that people Mm -hmm. just see like, Right. I'm not Doctor Baker in the outside right. world. Like people don't know that. Right. And, so, and 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 like you said, people people look at you like you you a doctor. Like so, that's probably the last thing that we would think. Yeah. I get that all the time. So and <laughs> I I just think is that for me that's the funny part when people be like, you the doctor, especially if it's like an older person, you know, old school mentality. Yeah. And. <laughs> They see me coming in with my braids, and I'm just like, my braids does not define me. Exactly. It does not define how I do my job because exactly. I know what I'm talking about. I know mm-hmm. how to still do my job with braids. Like, mm-hmm. I still know how to do my job with nails. Like, exactly. I still know how to do my job, and I'm going to do my job properly. And I think people, I think people are stuck in like this. I don't know what they're stuck in. Yeah, yeah. They stuck in that realm where, like, yeah, it's just... It's just, like, you're supposed to put on this, like, this mask and, like, be somebody... Like, I don't know how to be anybody but myself, so... And and I think it's important for not just kids, but, like, anybody to just be, like, oh, like, 
they're from South Central. Like, I went to Washington. Like, when people be like, oh, I see you went to, I'd be like, I went to Washington. They'd be like, Washington, like, Washington is not the best school. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, it doesn't matter was- what high school you went to, it's about the drive and about yeah, your, your mindset. Like, mm-hmm. so, and I tell people, I'm like, I went to some terrible schools growing up. I was not prepared to go to college. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even think I know how to study now. Like, I just made it through. Like, I was just good <laughs> at school. And I feel like people think that you have to, like, have it all together. Yeah. But I tell people now, like, I don't know every single thing. It's some people will be talking and use a word. And I just be like, I have no idea what that means. Like, right. you're not supposed to know what everything means. Like, you're, you're not you're not going to know everything. You're not going to be able to say like, oh, I know what that means. Or I know about that. I was like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, tell me like, yeah, yeah. So I think people, people think that you have to be like super, super smart to go to college or super, super smart to be a doctor. I'm like, you just have to have the drive and have the motivation and actually right. like want to do it in right. order to do it. Yeah, because and, there are and, and lots of special people that didn't go to college. So mm-hmm. exactly. but they had that drive because that's what they wanted to do. Exactly. So that's, I was like, that's just what I wanted to do. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's dope. It kind of worked out. <laughs> <laughs> where, uh, so tell me this, like, where do you, as a waiver psycho- um, psychologist in the state of California, where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Do you eventually want to, do you eventually want to have a private practice? Um, uh, you know, do you, or do you just want to continue to like work for work for a company, or kind of like balance both? Like, where do you see yourself in that space um, five to ten years from now? Ooh, I hate those five to ten year questions because <laughs> you know I gotta ask. <laughs> my mindset is like, I think because like I've experienced like loss. And like major people in my life, I just be thinking like I just need to live like in the moment. In the and, now. Yeah. Yeah, like in the now. Like I don't even know, like I don't know what I'm gonna be doing in five years. I don't know what I'm gonna be doing in ten years. But mm-hmm. as of right now, I do have a five oh one C. So I uh have a nonprofit. I just have it I'm still like learning how to how to run one or like right, how to right, get right. funding. So uh-huh. even though like I have a nonprofit, it's just like I'm still learning like sure. how to go through the process. So exactly. I'm dope. thinking like in the future, like my nonprofit will be off the ground, like uh-huh, and uh-huh. I'll it'll be up and running. But uh-huh. the population that my nonprofit is for is not the population that I want to essentially work with. Uh-huh. But I saw that there was a need for this particular group, but what I really want to do is like work in a prison or currently like I work with um people who are conditionally released because they were found not guilty by reason of insanity or incompetence stand trial. Okay. So I like working with that population. Like I like working with murderers and people who are severely psychotic. And a lot yeah. of people don't like working with that population, but right. I think they're awesome. So what do you, what I'm just hoping in the future that what, what do you, what do you like about working with that kind of population? Um, I think for myself, uh, so this is how, like, I conceptualize it. So for me, like, being Black and, like, a female and, like, me being myself, like, 
people like create this image of like who I am like oh she must be this or she must be that based on how she dressed how she wore her hair or whatever the case may be not knowing that I'm a doctor I became a doctor before I was 30 so mm -hmm. like people create these images mm -hmm. and working with this population I'm like people just see them like oh they're a murderer or they're this they're bad people but I'm like they're humans like mm -hmm. and people make mistakes or people do certain things but that shouldn't that shouldn't like keep them from receiving services or receiving right. the help they deserve right. or receiving exactly. any type of resources or needs that they're entitled to because exactly. they're human beings. So mm -hmm. I think sometimes that population gets dehumanized and, all the time. <laughs> and when I work with them, like so, when I worked in a prison, I when I came in, I was like, I don't want to know what anybody was here for. Like, I don't want to know what they were convicted of. Yeah. And when I started working with people, I was like, oh, this person is so nice. They're pleasant. Like, they come to, like, some of them didn't show up, but they started showing up when I started working with them because, like, I would do something as simple as put their name on a psychiatry list or get them a doctor's appointment when other people would come in and not, not, not do give it, a yeah. Right, like, right, right. Oh, it's like, oh, I haven't seen my therapist in two months. Like, mm -hmm. and it's just like you treat them like crap because you see them as their conviction or you see them as their crime. Yeah. So after I was about to leave, I was like, let me look to see what some of these people did, and I was just like, oh, murder, kidnapping, and strangulation. Like, mm -hmm. and a lot of these people, I was like, they're so nice. Like, yeah. so I feel like sometimes, even like as black people. I feel like there's a connection because they're dehumanized and they're looked at a certain way because of their crime or they're looked at a certain way because they're in prison or because they did something. Mm -hmm. And we're looked at a certain way because we're black. Exactly. So and, I just and, like that population because I like to make them feel like human beings. Of course. <laughs> that's, that's super dope. And so do you think, well, I'm sure this answer would be yes, but do you think like, the way that these kinds of people are being treated, the people that, that have done like um, these kind of crimes that people frown upon, uh, do you think this kind of treatment has been going on probably for a long time and it's never really talked about? Like like you said, like they're always assigned a therapist, but therapists uh, say they went and saw a person or they'll lie on the books and say they did this, they did that, but then they say, I haven't talked to nobody in two, three months. Like, do you think that, that kind of treatment uh, has been happening for a long time? Definitely. I think um, the mental health system and the criminal justice like realm is uh -huh. terrible. Yeah. When I worked in the prison, I was just like, they didn't even have access to certain things because they're in prison. So mm -hmm. normally like when you have therapy, like you can do like art therapy or do like creative type of things with them because you know, based on what they come and present with. But in prison, it's like they can't even have a sheet of paper. So mm -hmm. you can't even sit there and be like, okay, take this sheet of paper, have this pen, and I want you to go write down X, Y, and Z, or, you know, bring it back next time you see me. You can't even do that because of mm -hmm. the restrictions and limitations yeah. of being confined. So, mm -hmm. um, and then the treatment, hearing it from, like, um, the inmates themselves, like, oh, this person, I asked this person to do this and they didn't even do it. Like, it's simple as, like, just putting their name on a psychiatry list. Yeah, like, it's a little, it's a little small I, thing. I literally came in and was just like, oh, you know, do you have your medication? Did you see the psychiatrist? A lot of people was like, no, like, I haven't seen my therapist. Like, they haven't put me on the list. 
I literally did one thing and all those people got appointments and they came back like, thank you so much. Like very grateful for right. something like for simple, me doing something my job. simple. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> and crazy. I'm just like, if you just I, all they want you to do is your job. Like, mm -hmm. what did you come into this field for? And I tell people all the time, I'm like, within like mental health, I say there is, let's just say there's a hundred percent of mental health professionals. I strongly believe that there is a small percentage that actually give a shit about their job and give a shit about the people who they're providing service to. A lot mm -hmm. of these other people are, it's just like, it's just books. Like, oh, right. well, research shows. And I'm just like, half of the research you're talking about is primarily white people that they've mm -hmm. done these research studies on. Like that does not, that does not relate to this African-American client, this Latino client, this Asian client does not relate mm -hmm. to them. Like right, so if you don't fully understand them as individuals, like mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to provide a service right. and don't get me started on diagnosing because uh, it's, it's so much. Is it, is it, is it, water, is it watered down? Do they, do they over, do they over diagnose? Uh, people or over i can't tell you how many clients especially african-american clients i get and i'm just like you're not bipolar like you're depressed yeah like diagnosis of bipolar or schizophrenia i'm just like your diagnosis is not correct like mm -hmm. so and there's so many times where i've been in a meeting and people are describing like their clients especially like african-american men and i'm just like um they appear to be depressed i'm like usually with african-americans especially males like depression is masked by anger so you're going to mm -hmm. see more anger than sadness when it comes mm -hmm. to depression yeah. because growing up you couldn't be sad or you couldn't cry right, like you right, had right. to end up as a six-year-old so right, right. <laughs> you get all these men you get all these like mixed messages and i'm just like until you're able to like fully understand a particular culture or like actually invest in it like mm -hmm. you're gonna make these uh it's just that's, that's and these so are people true. who have doctor degrees that i'm sitting yeah. here like that's not correct like you yeah. clearly just stated x y and z so did yeah. you look into this and they just blow you off like mm. Mm -hmm. but because i'm black and i'm not supposed to know more than them so it's funny that you say that because I remember when I started therapy a couple of years ago, uh, I had, you know, I had picked, well, I, I, I didn't pick the therapist, but I was like going in the into like the preliminary, uh, sessions where we kind of get to know each other and then we see if we, if it's a good fit. And, uh, I ended up having like a mixed lady. She was actually from, it's crazy. She actually was from Iowa, uh, where I went to school at and she grew up a Hawkeye fan. So we hit it off about that. But then, I guess like in the first session, you kind of do like an overview of things. And so we talked about just what I did now, like like as a profession, things that I had accomplished in the past, um, what was I passionate about, stuff like that. And then she was like, she asked me to shut up, like, yeah, so why are you here? Like, it seems like, seems like you have everything like pretty much under control. Like, or it seems like you're headed towards what you want to head towards, your energy seems good, stuff like that. And then, I started telling her while I was there, <laughs> like just talking about some of my, my childhood experiences, traumas, um, questions that started to kind of like resurface in my head on different things that happened in the past. Some 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 college experiences, like I was talking about racism and classism and no lease of logic. Then she was like, uh, then she was like, then her whole when I started giving details, then her whole like uh, energy changed. Like, oh wow, okay. And when you and when you speak about 
just the the black culture growing up, especially um, back in the, now, I wouldn't say back in the day, but in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, like you said, most black guys, you're from the inner city, that's how you grow up. You grow up uh, hard, tough, you're not really, you never really, you're not ever really able to talk about your, your feelings or like you say, mm-hmm. ever admitting to being sad, you always gotta be aggressive and you always gotta be angry. And then, especially me playing sports my whole life, I'm always, I've always been super competitive. I'm talking about one, mostly competitive in middle school, one most competitive in high school. I don't give a damn who you is. I'm competing. I'm talking shit. We, we going at it. Like, you know, so and I've always been That's like that. Yeah, I've always been like that. So to finally be able to be in a space and, and be in a safe space and talk about that stuff. You know, at, at the time, I'm 31 now. At the time, I think I was like 28 before I ever got the curve. I had been thinking about it since like 25, 26, but I just was scared. I'm like, nah, I, I can't see myself going. In a, in a room, like you said, talking to a person I don't know, but more so reliving the shit that I had never really talked about, you know? And even in the first session, like, talking about it, luckily, the hour uh, ended, so, like, we, we had to stop, but, you know, all those emotions started coming back, and that's why I tell people, like, it's crazy, especially athletes, uh, and just people in general, Black people in general, all the shit that we went through, all the shit that we've seen, we have to find a way to talk to somebody or get it out because if you don't and you could be 40 you could be 50 and that shit will still mess with you it was still it was still living you like <laughs> yeah. it'll come through through your behavior and i think a lot of people don't understand um you ever like met somebody who like had it all together and you was like oh you got a good job like you did this or you did that like uh-huh. you you put together right, right. but those are the people who are suffering silently where it's just like mm-hmm. people think that they have it all together so people don't check on them or people don't mm-hmm. take the time to be like oh you good like everything all right right and i tell people all the time that somebody can be successful somebody could be going to work somebody could be into activities outside of work people mm-hmm. could be going out having fun going out with their friends mm-hmm. but still be depressed and a lot of people don't understand that i'm just like if you don't check on these people because you think they have it together then how would you ever know know? right right you're not going to know right right you're not yeah that's facts i think people people have this misconception like oh to be depressed you have to be sad all the time or you have to not want to get out your bed you have to not be eating i'm like you can be living your best life and still be depressed af Mm -hmm. like It's all internal and you you sit in here and you suffering in silence because mm-hmm. you have to put on this, oh, I got it together. So Right. And I also think it's cool that uh, I remember I heard uh Charlemagne the God say that like our our um generation, we have the uh damn what's the word that he used? Um oh, I had a brain fart. Uh we have the privilege. We have the privilege to to know about therapy and to find out about it, uh, like what mental health really is, and to change the narrative that we we can start going to therapists and we can make that uh, a normal thing as in the black culture. And and I, like you know, in the '90s, early 2000s, that wasn't a normal thing. You was considered you if you trust my using therapy and you was black, it was, people were looking at you crazy like what? Like that wasn't wasn't a normal thing. So we have the privilege to identify different problems that we went through and then actually go seek help 
and work through that stuff to make sure the next generation, you know, has a better upbringing and, and understands that, no, it's okay to feel like this. Like, you don't have to feel like you have to mask all those things and keep all those things in. So I definitely think we, you know, we're doing a pretty good job of like changing that narrative. Yes, slowly but surely. Right, I right. think uh, social media does not help. <laughs> you don't think it helps? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. With promoting, but I think people, I know. A people base their lives people, off of what they see on social media. And, and people get depressed on social media. Because they think like, oh, this person is this age. And I tell people, like some people be like, I don't have it together. I'm like, you're 26 years old. Like... Why do you feel like you don't have it together? Or people compare themselves to other people. Like people be like, "Oh, you a doctor?" That's the main. That's the main problem. Comparing. That's the problem. I I tell people all the time, like, don't compare anything to me. Like, just because I became a doctor at a young age does not mean that I did not struggle in the process. Does not mean that mm-hmm. I didn't have loopholes. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, don't compare your life to somebody else because once you start talking to people, you be like, oh, dang, like that's crazy and i'm just like right. stop comparing yourself to other people because that's even gonna make you more depressed thinking like right. oh i need to be here and right. people thinking like oh this person's 25 with a house and i'm 26 they got it more than i do and you just like you don't know what this person went through to even get this house or right. get that degree or get that car like you know right. you never know so never don't know. compare your apple today orange ever can't yeah you just can't do it um so yeah, last question, you know, obviously, like I said at the beginning, I call this pod the After Effect Podcast. I feel like as athletes, you play softball in college, we all have an after effect. We've all learned something in our career from a coach or a player or a friend or whoever. Um, we've all learned values or, you know, that we will take with us. So what would you say is your after effect? What is Sam Becker's after effect? What is something or some things that you would take with you um, obviously, in your uh, psychiatrist field now, psych- um, psychology field now, what are some things that you would take with you? And maybe you will spew it to one of your clients, or you will you will uh, teach it to you know your future kids or anybody. What you know? What are some of the things that you took away from your career? Um, I think if I were to have kids, I I would be that parent that is like raw and uncut because I had to learn that I think for a long time like I I took the opinion of others like I would you know compare myself to other people or x y and z but mm-hmm. as I've gotten older like probably like after the age of 25 I was just like screw the opinion of other people they're like screw what other people think because mm-hmm. at the end of the day like you're not providing anything like to my life. Like Mm -hmm. I'm providing everything for myself. So one thing is the opinion of others don't matter, especially Mm -hmm. if they're not providing any substance or any type of improvement or any type of empowerment to your life or, you Mm -hmm. know, trying to, trying to make sure that you succeed. Like, so opinions of others. Yeah. Don't Mm -hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. I don't care yeah. and also just live life I think sometimes we get stuck um in this idea of trying to do certain things that we don't stop to smell the roses or yeah. we want to capture everything on picture yeah. video instead of 
just being in the moment. That's and, so, yeah, that's amazing. And I, I recently just went on a trip out of the country and somebody was like, you don't have no pictures. I was like, honestly, like I was there for five days. And when I tell you, I took one video and that was like when I first got there from my balcony. And because I you was in the moment. Out. Yeah, you like, understand being in that moment, yeah. And I was, and somebody was like, you don't have no pictures. I'm like, if there are pictures, somebody else got them on their phone. Like I have no pictures from my trip because I wanted to enjoy myself. Like I wanted to be away from mm-hmm. what I just left. Like uh-huh, I wouldn't uh-huh. for a reason. So uh-huh. I think sometimes we don't live in the moment or we just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Everything Man, I, has to be for show for everybody else. Like in right. order for, for you to, people want to gain validation i'm just like the only person that you should be getting validation from is yourself and it's uh it's funny that you say that like you said uh you know i think we we we're all on sets of a rat race like just just always worried about the next thing always worried about the next accomplishment and that i think that sometimes you don't stop and smell the roses i remember i was talking to one of my good guys rob um he played in the nfl for a couple years i think he was episode you're going to be episode 18. So he was maybe uh, 10 or nine in one of those. And we was talking about it, like just all the things we've done and all the experiences we've had, all the accomplishments we've had, but we always, we so competitive and we're so worried about the next thing that you don't, like you said, you literally don't stop this one of roses. You, like you don't, you, because I find myself forgetting, like sometimes on Throwback Thursday or Flashback Friday, I'll go with my phone, I'll see some stuff. And I just be like, damn, I forgot I did that. I forgot I did that. I forgot. Like you forget when you get older, you're so worried about the next thing and to not get caught up in what you did in the past that you forget that, like you said, sometimes you do got to spin the roads and sometimes you do got to be like, oh, like I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm at peace with that. And all this just keep moving forward. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I feel like the best experiences that we've had, even if you grew up in like, a low-income family or if you grew up poor when we didn't have social media or we didn't have cell phones we still had fun like we still went outside like we just just lived like didn't we wasn't worried about oh this person or what this person did or what they had on or what we need to get and that's man and that's why it's so different now like you said like you said social media does play a big difference because now it's like a eight-year-old may have a YouTube, and they may have eight. They may have two million subscribers, and then so now this other eight-year-old, instead of this eight-year-old in Cleveland or this eight-year-old in LA, just going outside and playing with their neighborhood kids and doing and doing good in school and just doing local, local kids stuff, whatever they're doing in their neighborhood, they own social media or they own the computer, looking at this eight-year-old do these do these you things on the video kids. or. I didn't went to people's house. I had to get close to the camera because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't went to so many people's homes who have kids and they're on YouTube watching other kids play with toys. Yeah. I'm like, you have all these toys and you're watching another kid play with their toys. I'm the, like, the number, make you, it make sense. <laughs> you, you know, you know, that's the number one account on YouTube. I know who you're talking about. The, uh, I think it's like a Chinese kid or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. like a little boy or yeah. something like. Yeah, yeah. They say they say he made like he made the he made the most money on YouTube in 2019. He made I forgot what the number was. It was like playing with toys. It was I'm like, like 50, it, it was a crazy number though. It was like 10 million or 20 million dollars or something like that. And that's all he does. They literally set up the camera and he just played with toys. Like, 
I'm like, these places are sending this this kid toys, and these other kids are watching him play with the toys. And I'm just exactly. like, I'm, yeah. Why don't you go play with your toy? Like your your own way. Why you have to look at other people? Play? Yeah, right. Play, play toys. It's everything crazy. is so technology and social media based. It's, it's so just, different. It's so different now. I and recently de- I woke up like Friday early morning, and I was like, and something just told me to deactivate my Instagram, and I did, and yeah, I don't even miss it. Like, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I find myself, the older I've gotten, I'll be on there less too. Like now I'm more so looking at it as like a business. So like now I'm trying to get the podcast going and I got some other stuff coming out soon as well. So now I'm more so looking at social media as that, just trying to like get my business endeavors out there and, and hope and hoping that people engage with it, but not like really comparing and looking at, oh, he got some Balenciaga's on or oh, he got this house and not necessarily comparing, but just more so looking at it as a, as a business. But I can I couldn't imagine us in the '90s growing up how the kids now grow up. And I'm not gonna lie to you, I'm terrified. I mean, I am terrified to have kids because yeah. because it's gonna be so it's gonna be so different. Like I know that I'm gonna have to shift and change to kind of how the culture is now and just find ways to so they still feel like you know they're in the know and like kind of like in in everything, but also like. I just feel like some of the stuff is just, yeah, it's too much. I'm not even eager to bring children into this world because is Yeah, it's different. I don't even, I don't even know how it's going to be when I get older and I need a professional because everything, everybody just want to be on social media or be an influencer. And I'm just like, we're the people that want to be doctors and lawyers. Right, like, right. Who's going to be my doctor when I get old? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, man, that's, that's so true. That's so true. It's one thing I do want to say that annoys me about certain people. And I saw it so much on social media where people, like, especially people who are entrepreneurs and they're like telling like kids and telling other people, like, you don't need to go to school. You don't need to do this. You could be an entrepreneur. You can sell bathing suits or you can do this. And I'm like, all of that is fine and dandy, but you're giving this narrative that is just like, you're telling people not to go to school, but the attorney that you use for your business had to go to school. Exactly. The doctor that you go to for your medical needs mm-hmm. had to go to school. Mm-hmm. Your therapist had to go to school. Like all these yeah, people. I would never <clears throat> and and I don't understand why people say that. Like I I tell I, anybody, all my little cousins, go to school. Now, now yeah, maybe w- once you're done with school, maybe you'll find out that okay, maybe you want to start a business or maybe you want to go and do this. But the experience of school, like that is a big component. That is major. You're going to build relationships. Yeah. You're, going to meet, you're going to meet some of your best friends. You're going to be able to build relationships, like lifelong relationships, the people that you meet in college, like go to school. Now, yeah, you may I, not. I think people miss that point though. Because yeah. when I went to undergrad, when I went to Clark, them four years taught me so much. Like, not I, outside of education because honestly I can't even tell you like if I even consumed anything educational during the four years because <laughs> it was more so like okay write your reflection paper read this chapter like uh-huh. I can't tell you what I learned during the four years as far as education wise but because uh-huh. all of that stuff was like who actually you to, to be honest I'm just like I didn't really learn psychology until I got to my doctoral program where I was just mm-hmm. like oh that's what this means oh where to the point where I was stressed out and like crying, like I don't want this doctorate, like it's too much. But yeah. 
I think college just, some people be like, college not for me. And I'm just like, if you're the type of person that know how to talk, I didn't see so many people come to class one time out the semester and still pass. Like, yeah. I'm like, college is just an experience for you to just go and meet new people or just mm-hmm. learn how to navigate the mm-hmm. world and learn how mm-hmm. to like talk to people, learn how to mm-hmm. communicate, learn yeah. how to just learn how to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, and yeah, yeah. people just miss the point. Right, whole right. Experience. I just, I feel like education in college is probably twenty percent. The other eighty percent is just learning about yourself, like right, becoming who you who you gonna be. And 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 I think, I mean, in some ways, I agree. Like, uh, because I think, in my opinion, like college, uh, didn't didn't teach me like how to con- really connect with people, right? Like on on like a person, it didn't teach me that. Like experience taught me that, and so, but. A lot of people, even I can give you an example. Even a lot of the people that I had that I had that that I've had on my podcast and that I will in the future, I met in college. Like I met in college, or we built some kind of relationship or bond to the point where even in our thirties now, we still talk. Like we still communicate. We still check in on each other. And those are those are the powerful things. Or maybe I need this this for a business, or I need that for, or I need some advice or something. Like. Mm-hmm pretty much have that that toolbox of people that I can call or I need this let me call him or I need that let me call her nine out of ten times I probably met them in college or we met during the college years whether I was visiting I could like what I love about HBCUs is when I visited Hampton for that spring break I was there for a week and when I tell you I met so many like valuable people like during that week that I'm still friends with now that I go on trips with that I'm in group chats with that like we figuring out how we can do partnerships with, with, with businesses like and I literally didn't I never went to an HBC but I met them during college I, I I wanted to explore I wanted to go to Hampton Virginia and see how it was when I was 20 years old during my spring break and so if I didn't have that adventurous kind of that adventurous mindset to do that I never would have met these people I, you know and I, and I never would have those relationships yeah. so, and that's what I think people that's what kind of people get lost like you can't base what you experience, you can't give that to somebody else because everybody's experience is different. Sometimes college isn't for for you, and sometimes it is. But people ain't gonna know to actually go. Right. I personally, if I have children, I'm going to strongly encourage them to go to HBCU. <laughs> <laughs> Only yeah. I maybe you can say I'm biased, but I just feel like at both of my HBCUs, I think it's all about representation and mm-hmm. to have like. 95% of my professors be African-American, like, mm-hmm. to be Black, like, oh, that's Dr. Such-and-Such, such. that's Dr. It gives you, like, a different type of motivation, and sometimes, mm-hmm. even though they were your professor, and they was Dr. Such-and-Such, such, they was basically, like, your uncle and your aunties, like, uh-huh. they was right. gonna tell you, like, what are you doing, like, right, just basically right. like, you real, like, you right. think people care about you once you leave outside these walls like no like you need to prepare like you need to do this like basically like telling you like the ins and outs and like the real world right, of like right, being right. black and being yeah. a professional being educated right. and being black mm-hmm. and sometimes you well I'm not gonna say sometimes you don't get that at a PWI I didn't go to a PWI but just people who I know who've been to one like mm-hmm. they don't get that type of like care and support that Man, you would never get ever like it's, and, it's crazy um, obviously, I went to a, a predominantly white institution, and I'm, I've, I've been removed. I graduated from the University of Iowa in December of 2011, so it's almost been 10 years. 
I haven't, well, I, I, I've spoken to one of my professors and I, obviously I reached out to him, a guy named, by the name of Dan uh, uh, Mathis, he run, ran the sports business division at the University of Iowa. But yeah, like I said, I haven't, I haven't spoken to any of those professors. I haven't spoken to any of my coaches from, you know, just like you said, a, a lot of times, especially when you're black, you don't, they don't reach back out. They, 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 they could give a damn. Like <laughs> you graduated, you graduated from college and you from the inner city. Like, like it's basically like, you should be happy with that. Like you should be happy with that. Like we don't gotta, we don't have to follow up. We don't have to see if, if we can help in any way. Like you graduated, you from the inner city, cool. And you went to school for free. Like you should be, I feel like it seems like that's all they care about. Like, oh, like, we should just accept that, like as black men or black females, whoever, black athletes in general. So, and and yeah, and anyway. I feel you with the HBCU. Like, I I'm not even gonna lie. Like, if I if I could do it all over again, I would definitely consider going to HBCU. Now, like on the sports side, obviously, obviously that's it's different because I, you have more exposure when you go to these Power Five schools, SEC, Big Big Ten, Pac-12. You have more exposure. You playing on ABC. You playing in front of 110,000, 120,000, all that kind, all those kind of things. So, and all that stuff is cool. You kind of dream of that growing up, but just the networks that you have at these at these HBCUs, the care, they really care about you. And what I noticed living in Atlanta and, and meeting all these different guys that play the HBCUs, it's just that that network. Like like a guy, you know, you may have a guy, they may send you a, like, it, they may send you a job or they may uh, give you a referral. Like, oh, I think this guy may be good just because y'all went to the same HBCU, like, I mean, I just feel like people look out for each other at HBCUs, it seemed like, <laughs> uh, yeah. more than- It no matter how long you haven't spoken to them, like, people, yeah. people will hit me up and be like, oh, I got a question about mental health, or I got a question about this, like, somebody else, like, I'm, I'm trying to help somebody else, like, and I have no problem doing stuff like that, because, like, who's to say that one day I won't, need a like need a question answered about something or you know need that network and mm -hmm. I think sometimes um I never played sports at a PWI but just looking at certain documentaries and like hearing people experience it mm -hmm. seemed like a lot of like the black athletes are put in a position of inferiority where it's just like oh I'm taking you out of this uh exactly it, this low <laughs> income environment and this low yeah. socioeconomic like you should be happy no no matter and, how I treat you no matter how I teach you, you should be happy, basically. I'm giving you this money, and you're going to get a free education, but it's like, okay, but once that student, I don't see, like, anybody saying, like, you know, once I finish, you know, my four years of playing, I never heard anybody say, like, oh, yeah, they helped me get my degree, or I always hear, like, they had to go back and get their mm -hmm. degree mm -hmm. even if they got the motivation to go back, but mm -hmm. I don't see why you have the it's like you have these players that come from these environments and you know they don't know how to study you know they come from single parent homes they come from a disadvantaged environment and you wouldn't think like oh let me give them you know a little more support because of the because of the situation that they're coming from but you don't give them that extra support and you don't understand why they can't pass this class or they're not doing well it's just like well, you saw their grades before they got there and you saw the environment that you went into to go interview them or go get them from uh -huh. that place. Like, uh -huh. And you know, like, uh, they, like, they need extra support because they're not mm -hmm. going to be able to pick up on this type of 
schoolwork because one is a PWI and one the ed- the classrooms are filled to capacity. Mm-hmm. It's not like HBCU where it's like a classroom of thirty people like you in high school. It's like a you. class of two hundred. Two hundred. Yeah. So how do you think I, that they're going to pay attention in that type of environment or even be able to keep up? Yeah, and I I was just telling uh my, my dude um on the last episode. Like, you know, you go from an inner city school where you you only, you never would go to school with white people. Only white people you know are the few teachers that, the few white teachers that you've had. And then you teach at a black school. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then you transition to, the, to this to this big institution where you go to these classes, 250 people in there, it's literally three black people in there. <laughs> it's like, and the rest is white. Like, that is a hell of a transition. And it's funny that you said, like, sometimes guys need uh, more support. Uh, depending on what area you come from, because I think that's definitely true. Um, and you know, what's funny is um, my experience. Like, I came in, I, like I was considered, I was, I was pretty smart. Like, I was always in honors classes, um, even though I went to inner city schools. I always excelled in like major works. Um, my cumulative GPA was over 4.4.0 coming out of high school. But then, what what made my transition hard is the experience. That's what like made my grades go down. Like I like I think my first semester, my first semester I got like a two three. And then I think the next one I got maybe like a two eight. I ended up graduating my cumulative was maybe not even a 3.0, maybe like a two nine. But what stressed me out in college, it really wasn't the schoolwork because I was pretty I like I you know um I had I kind of had um those intangible skills. I knew how to study. I knew how to prioritize. I knew, I had solid time management. So I never struggled with my academics, to be honest. But I did have some bad semesters where I where I got Ds a couple of times, stuff like that. But it wasn't the, the work, it was my stress level. It was the football part that was stressing me out and really had my emotions all, I had so many mixed emotions, I couldn't focus on school. Or if I wanted to focus on school, one, my emotions was, was crazy. And then two, my body felt like shit. I mean, cause you, you know, practice and, and hitting people and, uh weight tired, yeah right? weight weightlifting sessions like the last thing i want to do is fucking study for this statistics test tomorrow like <laughs> you know what i'm saying so and that that's why i think that's why i created this platform because everybody experienced different like i didn't I, I had those intangible skills to study and stuff like that but a lot of times i didn't want to because i was so emotionally drained from what you what i had to go through at the at the uh football facility and then you, just your crazy rigorous schedule being up from 5 a.m to 11 p.m having to do the same thing the next day mm-hmm. over and over and over and uh so i think that's what some people don't uh don't really realize <laughs> definitely <laughs> but uh yeah that, so that's all i have i appreciate you carving out some time we we definitely um spoke longer than i intended i'm sorry i know you, i know you, you said you had something to do but i appreciate you <laughs> I appreciate you carving out some time. I something that I'm really passionate about is creating diversity on the podcast too. So just making sure I'm getting those those former females, whether whether athlete or not, on a podcast to have a voice, but also you know for us to exchange ideas and and uh, opinions about certain things and climate and all. So I definitely appreciate you carving out the time, and I definitely want to have you on um, again later down the line. Cool beans. Uh- I'll put you in my schedule. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, Dr. Baker. Put me in your schedule, please. <laughs> well, yeah, you have a good day. And uh, yeah, I look forward to getting you back on. Thank you so much. You do the same. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>
So yeah, again, guys, again, obviously, you know, we talk we talked for a long time, but um so excited to have Dr. Breaker on the show to just give that raw, uncut, unfiltered information about mental health, about psychology, things of that nature. Obviously, you guys saw we had a pretty good talk and we look to getting her on again for a future episode. So appreciate you guys tapping in. Um this is this was episode 18. As I try to continue to develop the podcast, we're gonna we're looking at making a, a Patreon account to give exclusive content to a few Patreon members and um, de- about to start developing some merch for the pod. So as we come out with different episodes and have have um, a certain number of episodes published, we'll start kind of releasing some of those things. So you guys can, re- if you really support the podcast, this was a very authentic and pure idea for me. So if you support it, then, then we, we're happy for the support and uh, we look forward to future episodes, future endeavors, future opportunities, really. Again, thank you for joining. See you guys on episode 19. Peace.